This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On this week's show, we're going to recap the action from the Doha Grand Prix. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on today's show. And before we get started, we've got a lot of questions in from our listeners. And there was one question that was probably the most pressing one for us to get to. So we're going straight into it. Neil, we've got a question in from Alex Whitworth. And Alex is asking, what are you and Matt going to talk about on air whenever Matt gets his hair cut eventually? Well, you see, Steve, this isn't a pressing concern because I'm convinced that Matt is never going to get his hair cut ever again, judging by his appearance of the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, I think we're just going to keep going with the uh, with the hair topic for, for as long as, as he has it. No, I'll, I'll tell you what, Matt should hold on to it as long as possible. And uh, David, you're very well placed to be able to talk about that. Oh, yeah, expert, mate. Very, very expert. I'm um, uh, obviously a big hair guy. I spend a lot of time on mine. Uh, pour a lot of money, uh, a lot of money into product. Product really rules my life. I remember there was one time actually we were all staying together in Silverstone, and uh, the girl behind reception came up to us. We were all sitting down in the bar, just getting our our dinner and a few drinks, and she came up to us and she said, eh, "I'm I'm 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 very sorry, gentlemen, but uh, we've got a shortage of hair dryers in the hotel. Can we take them from your rooms?" And we all looked at, at disgusted. <laughs> to be so insulted. And uh, one of the group, I won't uh, comment on who it was, said, no, you can't have mine. I've got a very hairy back. I need to hold on to my hairdryer. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, the lovely lady just left us. Um, I'm going to come straight to you, though, Adam, at the start of the pod, because I want to ask you for your moment of the Doha Grand Prix. Goodness, it says a lot that it's hard to pick. Um... You know, we talked about several in our, you know, our race notes roundup uh, on Sunday evening, straight after the race, Steve. Moment of the Grand Prix. Uh, yeah, for me, I don't know why, but Moto 2 still sticks in my mind. So I'll go for that last lap uh, chase between Remy Garden and Sam Lowe's. Uh, there was so much uh, going on, uh, both good and uh, kind of unsavory, I suppose you could say. But uh, that was uh, that was the pick for me. Yeah, not a bad pick as well. I thought that was a great battle at the end of the race. A real battle all the way through as well. Relentless pace all the way throughout. David, what about you? What was your moment of the Doha Grand Prix? I can't even remember what I said on the uh, uh, on the uh, paddock notes on Sunday night. Um, it was inspired, Dave. I remember it. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, I was up until five o'clock in the morning um, uh, writing me roundup um, after that. So, uh, But my, my moment is um, uh, Pedro Acosta's win because it... Uh, it asks and answers so many questions um such a talented rider um to win at so, in just your second grand prix after getting on the podium in your first grand prix um you know ktm's talent pool and to win from pit lane after getting a penalty uh you know it just it's it's fascinating it's outstanding uh, and i think it's a historic moment it's one of those moments you're going to look back on in uh, 10 years as he's on his way to the uh, to the MotoGP title and, and and remember yeah we also had that with Romano Fanati in the past and a few other riders so it's very easy to write their full CV for their career it's very easy to write what their history is going to be but they actually have to get the job done on track continuously as well Acosta started off fantastic though second last week first this week it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when he goes to Europe as well but they're all tracks he knows Neil what about you what was your moment of the weekend 
Um, I'm tempted to go with David's choice and uh, and say Acosta because that was just, uh, you know, I think everyone had to pick the job off the floor after that uh, race. Uh, but I'm going to go with um, Jorge Martin's weekend just because, um, yeah, the boy delivered. I mean, we were all a little bit skeptical, I think, after he got pole position, which was sensational. Really, really impressive on Saturday. Um, but we thought, ah, you know, maybe he'll get a good start and there'll be a few laps at the front at most. But, uh, yeah, the guy was outstanding uh, in the race I mean it was uh, it was a really really brilliant performance um, it wasn't just a, a kind of a one lap flash in the pan like the guy had uh, had serious pace um, I think he was uh, 19 seconds faster from uh, race one to race two um, and led 18 laps like a pro you know um, so yeah hat off to Jorge Martin that was uh, I think the standout moment of uh, the Doha GP What's what's the reason why none of us are picking Fabio's first win as a, a factory Yamaha rider? I mean, well, you haven't even, you know, you haven't I mean, even got it, my view yet, Ad. Oh, sorry, Steve. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I do apologise if, if I've ruined your 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 entrance. No, I wasn't going to pick Fabio anyway. <laughs> well, there you go. Before you give us your moment, you know, is it you know did was he lucky or was it not particularly uh, I don't know uh, authoritative? Uh, because. We expect him to win. I mean, he's going to win a race. You know, like he won three races last year. Uh, he, winning as a factory Yamaha rider, especially the week after a factory Yamaha rider won last week, it's not all that. It's not, um, I mean, it's it's amazing. It's fantastic. It's really good for his championship, all the rest of it. But it's not sort of mind-boggling. It's not completely unexpected. You know, it's not like a 16-year-old winning from pit lane. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, business as usual. It's exactly what you would or what you would hope to expect from the factory Yamaha um, team, which we didn't see last year, uh, and we're seeing this year. So yeah, I don't. It, it's not that it's not amazing or it's not good. It's just that it's um, it's very much what's supposed to happen. Yeah, but Dave, he finished 2020 in a flap. I mean, it was a, definitely a descent towards the end of the championship. And then, you know, there was no, there was a few alarming signs already from the first round last week. I mean, maybe there were kind of first race nerves. I don't know, but. Uh, yeah, but he was close last week. That's the thing. You, do, do you know what I mean? He wasn't. He wasn't nowhere. It's clear that uh, that things were working, and also this is a Yamaha track. I think we can sort of safely conclude that. Um, uh, well, it's a Yamaha track, except when it's a Ducati track. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, there was no surprise to me. Steve, your weekend moment. Well, I'll, I'll be honest, I wasn't tempted to have Fabio winning as the moment, but I did think it was really cool that we had a French one too. I thought that was, you know, the first time it's it's ever happened. There was something special about that without actually looking at it from the perspective of any of the actual participants or what happened in their races. So I'm actually going to go with that because it was, you know, a historic moment in the championship. So for me, that was pretty cool to see. And I thought, obviously, both riders did very well. And uh, we'll, we'll get into that during the course of the pod as well. But before we get into the pod, Ad, you mentioned it just a couple of moments ago about our Paddock Notes show. That's there just for our Patreon supporters. And if you want to become a Paddock Insider on Patreon, you'll get those, those shows over the course of a race weekend. We've done them for the first two rounds of the year to get everyone up to speed. Basically, it's we come straight off the debriefs, record a show and get it uploaded to Patreon as quickly as possible so everyone's able to get themselves up to date as quickly as possible. And just to give a shout out to a couple of our Paddock Insiders, Michael Jansen and also Alan Nance. So uh, thanks for your support on Patreon.com. So boys, let's get straight into it. And I'm going to kick off, Ad, just, just for you with Fast Fabio. 
and uh, his win. Obviously, a really good performance by Quattararo. We saw that he recovered really well through the race. He looked very composed all the way through, Bad. Yeah, and uh, you know you have to contrast his his performance to his teammate who won the previous week. I mean, Maverick Mignales, uh, by his own admission, blew the start. His reaction time was too slow. Uh, you know, we said in the last uh, podcast after the Qatar Grand Prix, you know, is this a new dawn for Maverick Mignales or are we going to see some of the, you know, some of the old bad habits crop up? And uh, it was a little disappointing to see that he still hasn't found, uh, a, you know, a reliable formula for his race starts. But, you know, Guattararo, you know, like we mentioned on, on the Race Notes uh, podcast, you know, he was one of two to three riders who were looking very strong at a certain point in the race. Uh, Peko Bagnaya was also pretty quick. Alex Rins had a massive moment, I think, going through turn eight i can't remember which one it was uh you know but it was was also you know really you know integrated into the group so um i think um once quattararo was the only one who was able to execute that move past martin then uh you know he had the race in the bag uh you know it was a big shot for the confidence for him um and then we're obviously going to port him out once we get to Hareth, and he's going to be flying just going to say that i think this was the race that fabio could have done last uh, last week because the, there was a moment in race one where he looked exceptionally strong he um kind of recovered from a iffy start um and basically towed vinales up towards the leaders and then he, he suffered from uh, some rear tire issues and um you know it's kind of funny how um riders you know, describe their race in some occasions. Like last Sunday, Fabio was talking about how he had this rear tire issue and, you know, there was no explanation for it and he wanted answers and he couldn't really put his finger on it. And then he told us after the race uh, yesterday, we were recording on Monday, um, that uh, round one was a rookie race from him. Um, basically, tire conservation had gone out the window. He hadn't even really engaged and changed the engine maps to conserve his tire at certain points in the race. Um, and uh, he had kind of, put a bit more thought into this one. He was a bit more composed on the bike and he was actually able to conserve his tires using the relevant engine map. So, um, yeah, I think the, the, the potential was there for Fabio to do this in race one. Um, and he, he, he was great. He was everything that we said, uh, about Vinales, uh, after race one, I think we could apply the same to, to Quadraro. He was okay. The, the, the first lap wasn't great, but he was composed. His racecraft was good. He was aggressive when he needed to be. And, um, he was able to move and make decisive moves at the right time in order to cap the, uh, the Ducatis, um, along the main straight, which was no mean feat. So, um, yeah, I think it was, uh, really strong stuff from Fabio Quadraro. I like the noises that he's making that, um, you know, he was in this position the start of last season after two successes at Hareth. And then, uh, for want of a better phrase, the, uh, the arse fell out of it. Um, so I think, uh, I think, yeah, he's looking pretty good. I think Yamaha are looking pretty good. And, um, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer, as you say, Steve. But, um, you know, Fabio has to be among, you know, the five or six names that could be champion at the end of this year. Yeah, and Dave, I want to just ask you a quick question, kind of related to that, because obviously last week we saw Fabio was fifth, yet last night we saw that it was Vinales that was fifth. So both the Yamaha riders, you know, they've come out from the first two rounds with the same amount of points, but definitely for Fabio, he's going to feel that he's got that momentum behind him, and not just because of winning at the weekend, it's actually because he learned the lessons from round one and really brought them to fruition this weekend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's all, it is about putting it all together. Um, and that's exactly what, what Fabio did uh, this weekend. Um, 
And I think also what was so strong about him is he understood where he had to pass. He had the patience to wait for when it was uh, the right time. Um, he uh, waited for the right place to pass. He made sure he could get enough of a uh, enough of a gap um, to you know basically drop the Ducati and drop Miller because or uh, not Miller um, uh, Martin. Um, and once he knew that he had enough of a gap, enough of a cushion, then you know he he knew he was safe along the straight, and that was it. So it was just it was just a really really uh, uh, clever, sensible, well balanced race, and it was what what he needed to to do. But I, I I really think I mean I hope we can talk about this later. But I really think that Yamaha that Yamaha made a huge huge um, uh, step. Well, I actually just wanted to go straight into that, Dave, because I had a question for Neil, because Neil, you said there that Yamaha look very well placed. That's obviously just factory Yamaha look very well placed because the Patronus Yamaha team had another really tough weekend, not even looking at Valentino Rossi right now. What actually happened to Franco during the course of the race? Yeah, it's tough to say, Steve. Um, I, I don't really think that um, Franco Morbidelli knew what was going on. Um, I think, you know, David wrote quite eloquently about this in his roundup on Saturday. Um, you know, Qatar is just such a strange track in that the track conditions um, are so up and down and, and so kind of random just with the amount of wind that they have, um, how much dust has been blown on, sand has been blown onto the track. Um, the temperature, humidity can all be very different. You only have one session a day essentially to work for the race. Um, and and Morbidelli just wasn't really able to put his, his finger on, on what was going wrong. Um, also, the, the, the kind of the idea that um, his uh, his start device um, was what affected his, um, you know, the start, life, start device not working was what kind of prohibited him in the first race. He, he said that that maybe wasn't even the case. Um, so it was, uh, it was a puzzling two weeks for him. Um, he did say he reverted back to his um, setup from the, the first kind of part of 2020. Um, and he said that that was good, but, the, you know, the, the sort of the, the downside of that was um, tire management wasn't great. And by the end of the race, he kind of had no tire left no rear tire left um and um, and you know valentino rossi was just nowhere all weekend um you know shock and qualifying really bad race at a track where he always excels um so yeah some worrying times for the uh, the patronus boys yeah, I mean, uh, Franco, what was interesting about what uh, Franco Morbidelli was saying, that they'd been going backwards, they'd been basically like discarding items from uh, uh, which they'd been using, first of all, during the test and then during the last part of the uh, of. 2020 when he was so strong going back all the way to you know the, the set they started last season on just to try and get a baseline it means they're a bit lost um i think last week's race really really cost them um it's yeah i mean i think once we get back to uh, Europe, it's going to be much more interesting, be much better. It'll be much more interesting to see what Morbid Early actually starts, you know, what setup he starts um, uh, Portim out with, because obviously, you know, he had a really, really good race at the end of uh, Portim out the end of last year. So it's going to be, um, it's really difficult to tell. And like I, you know, like I wrote, you just, Qatar, you learn so little that it makes it very, very difficult. But, when you struggle, you really struggle. Then you're then you're in real trouble, and we saw that with just about everyone. 
But it's puzzling why, I mean, I know Morbidelli's on a different model of Yamaha, but it's puzzling why the Petronas guys struggled and the factory guys seem to have the trick. Um, you know, we saw the closest ever top 15, you know, in MotoGP history. Uh, and Dave, you pointed this out on the Race Notes podcast that, you know, the, the riders have had an absurd amount of laps, um, you know, one particular track over the better part of 10 to 11 days. Um, so, you know, why couldn't Valentino Rossi, especially the most experienced rider on the grid, not really get you know, sorted out. I mean, I think Neil, you tweeted out on your account uh, today, you know, KTM, uh, you know, manufacturer have only had five Grand Prix at that venue uh, since 2017, made the biggest leap forward. I think their race time was like 19 seconds quicker or, or something like that compared to race one. I mean, that was, the, the, they had made a clear step. So I'm just confused as to why the Petronas Yamaha boys really couldn't find a solution, especially when we know that Yamaha, those four motorcycles probably are closest or they share quite a lot of information um you know you think rossi as well with his t- his links with with the factory team uh he would know instantly what kind of data you know, vinales and, and quattararo are using just a, a data point here so um let's see franco morbidelli improved his race time from uh, qatar one by 22.7 seconds um Fabio Quartararo improved it by 7.7 seconds, Maverick Vinales by 2.5 seconds, and Valentino Rossi by 1.1 seconds. So it shows you how much difference. I mean, obviously, um, Morbidelli had an absolute shocker. So it's not really surprising that uh, he, or in Qatar won. So it's not surprising that he made such a, 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 a big leap. And Quartararo went from fifth about, I think, four or five seconds back to um, uh, to, to winning. And so that's that's also a big, a big amount. And this was a really, really fast race i think the whole the race overall was something like five seconds um faster than last week so yeah it's a um uh it um it's interesting to see that to put it in perspective of who made such big steps yeah yeah and it's you know we talked about um patronus obviously having a tough time but um it was interesting hearing some of the ducati riders talk about trying to follow the Yamahas when they came past them out of the final corner in particular um, and they said in second and third gear I mean the Yamahas were actually gaining on them actually you know pulling out a wee bit and it was only in fourth fifth and sixth gear where the Ducatis were making up um, I, I don't think we've been able to say that so much about Yamaha in uh, recent times and I think this was one of the reasons why when Quadraro did get to the front on Sunday or when Vinales got to the front a week ago, you know, that they were able to, to make that gap because they weren't being totally overwhelmed on the street. They were obviously um, being reeled in, but it wasn't like, um, you know, previous years where we've seen Yamaha's just get swamped and drawn. Um, so, uh, yeah, it does look like they've made some real steps with, um, you know, kind of traction um, in the lower gears. Um, and, yeah, that has to bode well for the season as, as a whole. There was a um, there was a headwind for both races, but the headwind was much less in the second race. And a headwind um, when you've got a lot of top speed, the headwind is much more uh, disadvantageous because you know um, a, a drag is basically the square of the uh, the square of velocity, and so the difference between sort of like three fifty and three sixty, um, the the drag grows up enormously rather than between sort of say two uh, two hundred and two hundred and ten, um, and that's where the Yamahas were making all of their ground. They were making their grounds in the low, uh, making up ground in the low gears because they could they could get the drive and they could get the acceleration, whereas the Ducati. The, the, the strength, the real weapon of the Ducati is how much faster it is at the end of the straight. But when there's so much more uh, of a headwind, 
all that extra horsepower doesn't buy them as much extra uh, velocity. So I think because I think the Ducatis were closer this week than they were last week, just because there was less uh, less of a win. But because there was a headwind, that made it a little bit easier for the Yamahas because that handicaps the Ducatis much more than it handicaps the Yamahas. Yeah, and uh, Dave, I just want to kind of circle back towards the Patronus boys as well because we actually did get in obviously enough a lot of questions about this over the course of the weekend and uh, just as, as a sample of them Phil Armstrong and Ole Moto both asked pretty much around the same kind of question of asking what we expect for Rossi going forward whether or not this is reflective of him and just before we get into it I just want to give my thoughts on it as well because whenever we had our moments of the weekend at the start of the show I really wanted to say Rossi having the worst qualifying performance of his career was a moment of the weekend. It should be a historical note for us. But it wasn't. It wasn't surprising to see what happened with Rossi. His pace wasn't there all the way through the week. He didn't look like he was going to be able to do much. And even in the run-up to yesterday's race, I was having a chat with a few few racers in different championships. And I was asking them, like, you know, what sort of position do you expect for Rossi? What's your, what's your over-under on him? And all of them came back with 14th or 15th place was the expectation. You know, is this what we're going to see from Rossi throughout the course of this year? And if that is the case, obviously enough, this is going to be a farewell tour. I'll go first, if you like. I'll take yeah, you, the bullet. You, you jump on that landmine, please, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I'll jump on it. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, it's Qatar and we don't know anything, right? Basically, you don't learn anything from Qatar. Um, If you you either go well at Qatar or you struggle at Qatar and it's really difficult to actually make any improvement. Um, So I don't think this is a good... uh, It's also a track where um, tyre wear can be really, really uh, crucial. Uh, the fact that Valentino Rossi is str- still struggling with tyre wear, as he has been doing for basically the last two years or so, that is a bad sign. Um, but I uh, I am withholding judgment until we get to, shall we say, Barcelona, because by then we'll have had... I mean, Portimao's a new track, can't really say much about it, but we'll have had Jerez, we will have had uh, Mugello, um, uh, we'll be at Barcelona, we might have had either Jerez twice, uh, we might have had uh, Barcelona twice, we might even race at Le Mans, who knows? But those are all tracks that he knows, they're tracks that he goes well at, they're tracks that he understands, and so we should have a much, much better idea of where he is. If, by the time we get to, uh, say, Magello or Barcelona, he is still 12th, then I think, you know, this is going to be a farewell tour. Then I think you can write him off. But uh, the, the Qatar is too weird. That's the trouble. You can't You can't draw any hard conclusions from it. I think also Valentino is still trying to work out you know, the best setup still on the M1. I mean, he mentioned, again, struggling with rear grip, rear vibration. Uh, you know, I mean, he's one of the greatest riders the sport's ever seen, but maybe we have to give him a bit of leeway in changing teams, changing setup, changing personnel. I mean, for the first time in his career or the better part of 15, you know, almost two decades, he's not working with the same set of people. Uh, you know, I do find it a little... Not alarming, but surprising that he's still talking about racing another season or two, even in, in, you know, MotoGP. And I think he'll always justify a place on his team by virtue of his name and his number and his color alone. 
but you know you do have to wonder at what point do brands and um you know race managers uh people who are writing the checks say well listen we prefer a rider that might get us results compared to you know a guy admittedly who will bring people into the stands it's, it's a really tricky one but i mean it's nowhere near the kind of start i think rossi wanted i mean he won this grand prix uh he won at qatar rather in 2015 so it's, it's not light years away and to see him so uncompetitive was a bit uh uh, it was it was a bit soul destroying actually. Yeah, and I think it's like we said in all of our preseason shows as well. It's easy to forget that Rossi should have won two races last year. Could have won two races last year. You know, he had some weekends where he had really good pace. You think back to Catalonia, and that was a real opportunity for him. So th- it is still there for him. But the problem with it is, and we've said it a lot in, on the show over the last couple of years, MotoGP is too competitive now. You know, Rossi was, I think seven eight tenths of a second off the pace of the race leaders for a lot of yesterday and he was 20th he was 19th he was 18th he was 16th you know he wasn't able to make progress because it's that close it's that competitive somewhere around you know like Lucille, eight tenths of a second is half a tenth around each corner you know he's not given up huge amounts anywhere but he's given up enough everywhere to be all the way down the field so it's a small improvement is all that they need but you're living in MotoGP now and those small improvements are tough to find. The problem is if you are Rossi, what do you do? Do you kind of make a decision after you've had four or five, six results finishing outside the top 10? Uh, is it, you know, do you put your hands up and say, I was one of the best ever, but now I'm not good enough? Or do you keep soldiering on and hope that, you know, maybe you'll have a fantastic win at the, you know, the greatest racetrack of them all like Assen or Silverstone or something. And then, you know, it's, uh, it's like going out in a blaze of glory. The cathedral, Adam, I think you mean. <laughs> Steve, I'm not even going to respond to that comment. Yeah, honestly, I think um, because, I mean, like, he's always said, I'm going to wait for the first five or six races. Uh, the, the, Rossi's best tracks are all in the first half of the, uh, all, the first half of the year, with the exception of Mizano, because he's quite good at Mizano as well. Um, it's a pang, Philip Island, he's been, he's been quite good there as well. But, you know, like Mugello, he loves Mugello. Uh, uh, he loves uh, Barcelona. He's always been faster to Jerez. He, he loves Assen. Um, those are the tracks. And if, if the, he's, you know, if he is qualifying 21st there, if he is finishing 14th, um, if he finishes 14th at Assen, a long way off the back, then I think it's it's difficult. And then I also start to think that people are going to say, you know, who do we want next year? Do we want Remy Gardner or do we want Valentino Rossi? I mean, you know, Valentino Rossi's great, but Remy Gardner might actually win you a race. Yeah, that's fine. But Remy's obviously going to go to Tech Trois to replace Iker Lekwona, Dave, so you can take him off the, ca- off the case. Um, Neil, I want to ask you a question because... Is If it's too easy to read too much into Rossi's performance in Qatar, it's not a big enough sample space, is it far too early to read too much into Jorge Martin's performance? And I'm coming to you because you obviously picked Jorge Martin's poll as your moment of the weekend. Um, I mean, yes and no. Like, you know, basically what David said about Qatar, you know, you can apply that to all the riders. Um, it's not really a good gauge, but at the same time, um, it's really not very common that rookies score podiums in the you know the first handful of races. Martin's the first guy to score a MotoGP podium in one of his first two races since Marquez in 2013. Um, I mean, that's saying quite a lot. Um, and it wasn't just like a podium. It was the manner in which he rode all weekend that I found so impressive. Um, I mean, 19 seconds from one week to the next is seriously, seriously good. Um he rode like a rookie in his first race and got too excited 
and burnt up his rear tyre, yet there was absolutely none of that evident as he led the race. And as David said, it was a fast race. I think it was five seconds faster um, from race one to race two. Um, Zarko was saying how he was kind of amazed. We was like, well, we're doing low 55s. Um, I kept expecting him to drop away. Um, and, you know, Martin said this, and it's, it's okay to say this, obviously, um, after the event, but, you know, had it not been his teammate in front, he would have, you know, definitely tried for a, a kind of a, a retribution move or, or he would have tried to respond at the final corner. So, um, you know, it could have been a second place. I think it was seriously impressive, the fact that he outperformed Banyaya and Miller in only his second um, Ducati race is seriously impressive. Yeah, um, Qatar is a weird place with weird conditions, but I think this definitely says a lot about how Jorge Martin is going to perform in uh, MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, I'm really going out on a limb here, but I think it says more about what he's going to be like in his second year rather than his first year because, uh, you know, they've been there for 11 days. They've been riding there for 11 days. You know, they've got their... Um, uh, the number of laps they've gone around there are counted in orders of magnitude. Um, it, you know, they're almost in the millions of kilometres uh, uh, around there. So... He has had time to understand fully how to ride a MotoGP bike around Qatar. And he rode it outstandingly, just superbly. Um, because like you say, his times, he was 55s all the way through the race, only dropping off to the high 58s at the end. Uh, again, what was impressive about Quattararo's win is that at the end, he's doing 55-1s and 55-2s, which is really, really fast. Um, so I think he did. Uh, I, it was a, an outstanding race. He had everything fell into place for him. Uh, the pole the, the pole lap was really breathtaking. Um, it, I think there's a... Uh, what you saw was his potential. This is his potential. I think it, like next year, I'm really looking forward to seeing him next year, but I fully expect him to get to uh, maybe a track like Portimao, you know, like where he doesn't have the time around it on a MotoGP bike and where he doesn't really know the track so well and to struggle quite badly because you've got to get your head around something very, very different. Also, maybe Jerez, because Jerez on a MotoGP bike, especially a Ducati, is so much more difficult than a, the, than a track like Qatar. But he was really, he was incredibly impressive in this race and it showed that, like this was his potential but um you know it's still only a second race it is still only a second race in MotoGP um there is so much more to learn and I think he's going to spend the rest of the year learning it yeah I think Dave Dave's spot on there I mean while it was an impressive feat I think we have to you know also calm down a little bit because you know he's racing it was the last day of action at the only track where he's ridden a MotoGP bike you know you think he would know uh even though he of course he's a rookie it's still an ideal scenario i mean it was uh half decent weather conditions and um you know he had countless laps on that bike at that track uh you know once we do get to some more idiosyncratic kind of courses uh some very diverse different challenges in terms of layout grip whatever else then that's where you'll see how much of a talent you know martin is on a motor gp machine Honestly, I, I think he's going to do really well at Magello. I'm quite interested to see how, do, how he does at Magello because it seems like the way he was riding, that seems to uh, – I think that will suit Magello. The, you know, the, like the lean angles he was getting, the corner speed he was carrying, that's really going to suit Magello. And it would be interesting to see – uh, you know, maybe let's let's uh, uh, let's speculate. Maybe we get Banyaya versus uh, versus Martin at uh, Magello for the win, and that would be, for a start, very, very entertaining. 
I mean, we all know there's so much more to it, don't we? I mean, we were singing Quattarara's praises at the start of last season. After that double win, it looked like nobody was going to touch him. Uh, not mention any names, Neil Morrison. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, and then ultimately Fabio descended down the standings and finished eighth in the championship. I mean, Jorge Martin has yet to be tested uh, in a political sense uh, in the team because his teammate is now leading the championship. He's also uh, to be tested in terms of where his future might lie. Uh, there's all sorts of little pressures that are going to come at him. So uh, let's let's uh, let's hang on before we start hailing the new Mark Marquez. Yeah, and just before we go on, I would like to point out that uh, a certain someone that's on this call tried to pull my blog after I picked <laughs> up uh, Fabio Quattararo in 2019, and he hasn't gone on to do too badly. Someone was saying, oh, it's just a flash in the pan. So uh, touche, Mr. Wheeler. I think it's interesting to see while Adam's talking about the political nature that Jorge Martin has to now try and understand how to wade through that Neil Morrison immediately at ease to wade straight into that with with one of his editors. So that's quite impressive, Neil. But I'm going to ask you a quick question there as well, Neil, because it comes back to the team tactics that we saw with Pramac. And we got a couple of questions in and uh, one of the questions we got in was from Gooseyard. And he was wondering, just how often do we see teamwork like we saw from Pramac during the course of this race? Because after the race, Zarko was talking about how he basically wanted to hold up Alex Rins so that Jorge Martin was able to stay out in front and try and open up a bit of a gap. Obviously, Zarko would have felt that he could bridge that gap quite easily. But he was working as a rear gunner despite being the presumed team leader yeah i mean he didn't uh, he didn't make up the the gap that easily it, it only took him well it took him until what the penultimate corner of the of the race um to actually get close enough to martin to make a move um but um yeah i mean we've seen this in in, in previous seasons with Ducati riders in particular i mean petrucci when he moved into the factory team alongside the vizioso those guys were working together and they were conducting tests and free practice sessions basically behind one another to see if they could um, eventually um, play together in the race. But um, I think, you know, Zarko's comments that you mentioned there, Steve, just shows um, what a kind of a, a clever, intelligent rider Zarko is. And, you know, maybe a guy that can fight for the championship this year because, you know, he was just thinking how he can use the situation in a race to his advantage. Um, and, you know, there's a guy that hasn't looked flustered at all Um you know, so far this season in testing or in the races. And um, he said himself on, on Sunday evening, he still feels there's a, a lot more to come um, from him on this bike. So, uh, so yeah, I think um, that was a sign of, of, of you know, Zarko's intelligence, um, how he was using his teammate up ahead. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, we don't see it a lot, but um, there have been occasions certainly in the past, yeah, most notably, I would say, with um, the factory Ducati guys a few years ago. I mean, you use... You do use this sort of uh, team tactics to your advantage. You actually see it a lot in Moto3. You will see the riders going out to help each other during qualifying, which is and an, an practice to, to, to set a fast time, which is really, really smart. And we've seen it in MotoGP a few times. Um, you, I mean, the, the first thing you want to do is get rid of the opposition. So if you can get rid of the opposition by holding them up, but it's also a sign of um, uh, the confidence which Zarko had in his own ability was like, okay, if I can get rid of uh, Rins, hold him up, then I don't have to worry about him. Uh, and you know my rookie team, I can get past him. That's not going to be an issue, you know. So that's it, it's that kind of thinking. 
Um, it's that he. I think it's a sign that he's not afraid of uh, of Jorge Martin yet. Uh, that might change in the future, but usually, I mean, you can always tell riders are, are riders are always nice to uh, other riders they're not afraid of. So we'll see how that uh, how that plays out in the end. I mean, you know, in we've seen it so often that. Um, uh, you know, Valentino Rossi, Mark Marcus, they've been very, very complimentary towards uh, uh, towards other riders. And then all of a sudden, those riders turn out to be as fast as them. And then all of a sudden, they're not quite as friendly to them. It's also worth pointing out as well. I think Zarco uh, obviously proved his speed and his capabilities on the Yamaha. Uh, so he's jumped from a V onto an inline four with, uh, sorry, the other way around with the Ducati. He's, having, he's had a year to acclimatize and now he's really probably fight. I, I can't think of any other rider who's really switched between those two kind of engine technologies and and really excelled i mean zarka's already been on the podium um and now leading the championship so uh it's it's, it's a good sign for him I, I think there's a difference uh he's one of the few to go from a uh from yamaha to a ducati um he was hopeless on the ktm um, he was okay on the Honda, but the Honda was quite a difficult bike to ride, to ride still. Uh, but and that the was on the three races. I, well, yeah, also, yeah, yeah, also. Um, I think also um, it's the, the Ducati seems to be the second easiest bike to ride. The Yamaha seems to be the easiest bike to ride. You can get on it, you understand it, it'll do what you want. Uh, you can understand how to make it go faster. The Ducati is a bit like that because we've seen rookies. I mean, Banyai in his uh, in his first year um, had some glaring problems some glaring weaknesses but he was able uh, on occasion to actually get up to speed quickly whereas if you look at uh, people jumping onto the honda straight away um then it takes them a while to actually get their head around it um so yeah i i think we haven't often seen someone go from a yamaha to a ducati and i i should imagine that someone like uh, fabio quattararo or maverick or maverick vinales are have half an eye on uh, Joan Zarco and thinking, okay, right, so maybe it's not as difficult as, uh, uh, as for example, Jorge Lorenzo's uh, excursion to um, uh, uh, to Honda. Because I mean, you know, we 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 saw with uh, Lorenzo as well, who was the uh, archetypal Yamaha rider, the corner speed rider. Um, he got on a Ducati and he was sort of okay for the first year, but once they sorted out his problems and he fixed a few. Uh, of his riding, uh, a, a few things in his riding style, he was dominating. He was, you know, he looked capable of, 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 you know, winning a championship. It's just that Ducati had, for some reason, Claudio Domenicali had decided he didn't want Jorge Lorenzo taking any more of his money. And it so, was a large uh, amount of money, to be fair. A lot <laughs> of it might have been down to the fact that Jorge was obviously much more stylish as well than Dominicali, <laughs> and that was a big factor. But let's move from that straight into the factory Ducati team as well now, guys. We've got a question in from Andy Mast, and he's asking, why do the factory Ducati team never quite meet their expectations? <laughs> um, I think it says a lot about the 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 atmosphere inside the Ducati team, uh, inside the factory Ducati team, the pressure has always been enormous. I mean, we've seen it in the past. We saw it with, I mean, it's amazing that Andrea Dovici has managed to, managed to stay there for a long time. The expectations are huge. Um, the the advantage of being in a, in a satellite team is when you fail, it's not so bad. Like no one's going to, if you don't win the championship in a satellite team, 
No one worries about it. Whereas if you're in a factory team and you don't win the championship and you don't win a race, the pressure is absolutely enormous. And Ducati has a reputation for being, you know, um, one big family when we when we win. Look, we won a race. And uh, not the, the complete opposite when you lose, Ryder. Why did you lose this race? So it's a completely different sort of atmosphere. And you have to be able to get your head around that. Some riders are good at it. Um, I think a lot of riders struggle with it, but um, it, it's just the way that you, you you have to manage. And I think you have to. I think it's easy to fail. Dave, you don't work for Ducati, do you? Because you were scaring me a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, I, well, you know, Claudio would have many Carly's got to retire sometime. Yeah, and you're not stylish enough to worry him as well, Dave or Paolo, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Claudio could never match Dave's headgear uh, style that uh, we see during race weekends but yeah I think that you know the same could be said of, of, of you know most factory teams I imagine the Repsol Honda team is uh, is not exactly like a, a nice Sunday walk in the park um, but yeah just to, to kind of echo what Dave said um, there is a serious amount of pressure and you do get the impression that there is a genuine belief from certain Ducati engineers that that is the best bike and that is a bike that is capable of winning the championship and if you're not regularly winning races then you have underperformed and um you know i think that's that's probably quite apparent with you know uh, Banya and jack miller how they're feeling right now you know after after that race on on sunday because Banya i think had the certainly the potential to be on the podium again didn't do it he said you know he made a mistake breaking for turn one and lost a couple of positions he said you know that's unacceptable um, that kind of mistake in, um, in in my current situation, and Miller, I know there were sort of a, there were there were factors involved in his two ninth places, um, but again, you know, he was expected to win at least one of these races. Probably he was expected to finish on the podium in both of them. Um, yeah, this is a, a real test for for him how he bounces back from this. Yeah, we were definitely guilty of that as well because in the lead up to, you know, our season previews and the lead up to the first round of the year, we talked up what Miller could do in Qatar and didn't live up to those expectations and you know it was interesting what sort of happened but I think for me one of the things that's interesting Dave you you touched on it there whenever you said about the satellite team always has less pressure for some reason people still think Pramac are an underdog Pramac has effectively the same bikes as what the factory team has you know the days of Danilo Petrucci putting it on the podium and the press release going out saying we had a podium that was it you know, they're long gone. Ducati expect Pramac to get good results. Pramac are under that pressure now as well. But we all still remember the, you know, the fun-loving days of Pramac. And now they are shifting into a very different team. But then let's not also forget, you know, it wasn't a complete disaster from Jack Miller's perspective. I mean, he did head... Yeah, he came out of the tests as the guy. I mean, you know, everybody, I'm sure there's a lot of people who play the MotoGP fantasy manager game and put Jack Miller in straight away. Um, like he pointed out, you know, in his debrief yesterday, um, there was kind of an interesting uh, chat, mainly for the, the incidents with Drown Mir, which we'll probably talk about later. But, um, you know, he was only five seconds off the race winner. But what is concerning for me is that now Miller's talking about having um, an R-pump operation in Barcelona, uh, even possibly before Portimao. So you do kind of think, I mean, it's like Dave was saying, the pressure you go from being, you know, the the guy who's heavily favourite to, to winning Qatar to suddenly being a few incidents, a few things happening, uh, a few miscalculations perhaps with tyre choice or uh, incidents with, with tyre selection that doesn't work out for you. And then uh, suddenly it's not looking all quite so rosy. 
Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that incident between Miller and Mir. We're going to talk about that after the break on the Paddock Class podcast. But before we go to a break, we actually got an update from Michael Laverty on his thoughts on the Doha Grand Prix. And uh, I'll, I'll do um, have a, a big disrespect. I'm just going to call him a pundit now. And that will annoy him no end. So let's hear from BT Sports, Michael Laverty. Of course, MLAV, plenty of experience on the MotoGP field and lots of experience on a superbike as well. Obviously, one of the big talking points after the MotoGP race was the Mir versus Miller clash. And actually, I see it a little bit different from the majority. You know, a lot of people have been blaming Jack, but obviously there was the first contact when Mir hit Jack and he hit him at the back of the leg. So it was quite a late move and it obviously pushed Jack off track. So he penalized Jack by that move. And then the coming together, coming onto the start straight, Mir had went deep into the final turn, followed Rins in there, and he was coming back onto line. Yes, Jack may have been able to see him, but where people think it's dirty, but Jack's bike was upright and he actually met Mir handlebar to handlebar. So they were alongside. So what Jack did was actually tried to squeeze Juan out, tried, tried to penalise him for that mistake, tried to make him have to roll the throttle because the, the track kind of <clears throat> goes a little bit wider at the outside and then almost narrows into that point where you go to the green. So Jack was leaving him no room. So he had to roll the throttle, which he's entirely uh, justifiable. That's okay to do that in the race. So he was squeezing him out. Side by side, it's up to Mir at that point because he's made the mistake and he's coming back onto the race line to be aware of the possible overtake from the inside. So both guys, at that point, it becomes a racing incident. They can both see each other out of their peripheral. Jack didn't need to give it up and he wasn't at an angle. I would have said if he if he did almost came at Mir with the bike still at an angle that was opening the throttle to run into the side of him, as some people suggest, he was dead upright. And he made contact and it's only the width of the fern that then caused Jack's front wheel to, to kick out. And then obviously he leant left and went into the side of Mir and that caused them both to lose time. So, yeah, for me, I don't really apportion blame. Obviously, I know Juan's quite annoyed, which is quite normal. <laughs> Every racer's done it where they feel aggrieved and they only look at it from their point of view and they will attack the, the offending rider. So, yeah, in a few years' time when he looks back, he'd probably think it actually wasn't that bad from Jack's point of view. So, yeah, it's a racing incident and it's great that it gets everyone talking but I have no problems whatsoever I don't think it was dirty by Jack's uh, from Jack's side it was harsh but it was fair and um, he was completely entitled to do it to hang Juan out to penalise him for the mistake and yes that was because Juan made contact with him earlier in the race so that is racing um, looking at Motor 2, obviously an absolute masterclass from Sam Lowe's at how to manage pressure from Remy Gardner throughout the race. And Sam is on such good form at the moment. And then looking at Pedro Acosta in Moto 3, what a boy from pit lane to win the race and just keep that momentum throughout the field as he as he caught them. He didn't slow down for anyone. So, so impressed with his performance. That kid's got such a bright future. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. We just heard from Michael Laverty about the incident between Joan Mir and Jack Miller. But uh, Dave, what was your thoughts on what we saw on track? Um, I was, I mean, I found it really interesting what uh, what uh, uh, Emlav said. 
he gave me a perspective which I hadn't had. Um, and he is right. The fact is that um, Miller, I mean, Mir was wide and coming back onto the track and Miller was just sitting there on the track. Uh, so, so he had a priority, if you like. But uh, it's quite clear, if you look, you can see Miller look over. On the exit of the corner, you can see Miller look over at Mir. And he was... He was looking for Mir. He was looking for this. So he sought out the conflict. Now, Mir's, um, I mean, you know, Mir's move up into turn 10 was uh, very poor judgment. Um, he didn't get past. Uh, I can imagine the frustration. Uh, I, I think Miller, um, yeah, I mean, Miller's move was... <laughs> Right on the very limit, I would be tempted to give him a, a penalty, except for the fact that, you know, by those two coming together like that, they both punished each other. They both got in each other's way. They lost a lot of ground um, and it ended both of their chances of a, 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 of a decent result. And um, so it's not really surprising. Dave, you mentioned there that mirror into turn 10, that move. What, what way did you see that then? Because for me... We're looking at the onboards on MotoGP.com, you know, you can see that coming through the right-hander, Mir carries so much more speed than Jack that basically he has no choice but to try and attack. Miller tries to answer back, but he's on the wrong part of track to be able to actually defend the position. So Mir is already in a position to try and attack and he has to go for it. He's got no choice. If he doesn't try and attack into 10, he's got no chance about being able to stay in front of, of Miller. And I think that, you know, this seemed to be the inst the moment that kind of clouded Jack as well, where obviously he feels that he's probably taking his normal line, his normal approach, and then suddenly there's a Suzuki there, but that's because the Suzuki's able to get into that position. Uh, well, I mean, it, that was... Well, there are two places you can really pass, especially on the Yamaha or on the, uh, on the Suzuki. It's where you saw them, turn six and turn ten, the two left-handers, um, because you can carry enough speed out of the, uh, out of the corners preceding them to actually dive up the inside and then get past. And also, once you were past, there was enough corners between that and the straight to actually get away. So they, uh, Mir had to make a move there. Um, he it, His error was not getting far enough ahead because he got his front wheel sort of level with the back of um, Miller's front wheel, but he didn't get his front wheel ahead of uh, ahead of him and you know Miller tried to close the door because he didn't know or it, he was trying to prevent Mir from getting past but they were all they were all together so it was a um, that one was I wouldn't say six or one uh, half a dozen of the other it was about sort of you know three Miller and nine of um, uh, of Mir but it was a truly a racing incident Mir tried to move and didn't get enough uh, didn't get far enough ahead um, uh, Miller's move looked a little bit more uh, intentional the one thing is uh, Jack said that that he, he was um, you know he'd had been touched three or four times beforehand there'd been lots of contact I was looking and I couldn't see where that might have been and I'm not even sure that it was between him and Mir I think there was just lots and lots of um, sort of niggles and people going backwards and forwards and people touching each other and Miller was getting more and more frustrated with his position he couldn't go forward and uh, uh, Juan Mir ended up uh, being on the sort of receiving end and uh, perhaps to an extent deserving to be on the de on the receiving end. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he would. Uh, he was deserving to be on the receiving end because that was pretty uh, combative stuff, especially um, where 
it happened as well. You know, I mean, it's a pretty dangerous place for that to happen. I think the fact that Miller didn't even deny that it was intentional and um, that his excuse or his justification for what happened was that, uh, you know, I'd been roughed up a couple of times, like everyone had seen the race and everyone had seen what a few of the things that had happened to me. Um, I mean, at least he was being honest about it. Um, but, you know, I, I, he didn't deny that... Uh, that he was kind of intentionally seeking Mirot. Um, and I think, you know, that is, it's pretty dangerous. You know, I, I saw something that Matt Oxley wrote. Um, he said that in his eyes, you know, Miller was maybe just trying to maybe just clip him ever so slightly. And uh, the fact that Mirror was kind of turning back into the track caught Miller off guard and they ended up um, coming together more than he thought. Maybe he wanted just a, a little warning to brush by him. Um, but it was clear that he was raging at that point that he, he was quite angry um and uh yeah it ended up costing both of them yeah we actually see that a lot in model two and in, in particular and a bit of model three as well where riders will use their elbows an awful lot to just kind of nudge away as opposed to just trying to like lunge with a bike so you tend to see it where they'll just lift an elbow every now and then and just it just puts that little bit more pressure on the other rider for me it was one of those instances where jack was more interested in given retribution rather than thinking about the race result which is fair enough that's what happens when the red mist comes down i i said it on paddock notes last night i don't think a penalty would have been fair i think it's one of those things that is a racing instant but it's on the limit and something that does need to be looked at i thought it was interesting with what mlav said because it's impossible to argue with it but i also didn't agree fully with it you know there's nothing you know there's nothing better than an argument where everyone can actually be correct and this is one of those <laughs> kind of arguments and it's quite strange whenever you get something like that but dave that's the definition of a racing incident when you know it's not really about a portion in blame yeah exactly i mean like i say listening to him emla have actually changed my mind because um Mir is basically off track and Miller is taking up the position and you know it's like it's like merging onto a motorway you you always have the option to roll off Mir had the option to roll off but he was never going to roll off uh and Miller um saw that and could easily you know he could have let him all he had to give him was a meter and it would have made no difference to Miller's uh, sort of speed onto the straight um but uh, absolutely no way that Miller was going to roll off either so it was just two people um sort of at loggerheads really um i think it was definitely it was much more red mist on the part of Miller uh, but it wasn't a you know it wasn't an overt crime it was um in a way it was a re sort of reminiscent of some of the crimes of Valentino Rossi where he managed to do sort of some fairly cheeky things while making it look um, entirely legitimate. How dare you, Dave? How dare you? Because apparently now Brad Binder is the ultimate sinner in the eyes of Valentino Rossi. Uh, for me, I just think, yeah, I, I just think, you know, it was uh, a bit of payback by Jack. And I think you just have to look at his reaction immediately after the contact as if to say, well, you screwed me, mate. So have some of it back. Um, you know, Miller was extremely frustrated and, um, demonstrative after his first uh, Grand Prix when he came back into the pits uh, you know there was a bit of emotion a bit of anger there and I think this uh, just added to the sign that he is under the cosh uh, as we mentioned in the Factory Ducati team and now the fact that he's seeking to have arm pump surgery because he lost feeling in his right hand with four or five laps to go um, you know points to the fact that you know maybe Jack is, a, is searching for something. Yeah and I think it's one of those instances as well lad where we can't allow 
Grand Prix riders and motorcycle racers for being gladiators, for being combative, for being all these great adjectives that we like to put into stories and then give out a little whenever something like this happens. You know, I think it's one of those instances that you chalk down and you and you take a note of it. And then if Miller does something again later in the season, you kind of say, well, hang on a second. You know, there's a there's a pattern developing here. But in isolation, I think it's one of those that you just kind of write off a little bit. But it's interesting that it happens this week as well, because uh, Jack's under pressure. You know, we talked about it just before the ad break there, where he came to Qatar expecting to win Grand Prix. He's still looking for that first dry weather win. He would have thought, two races in Qatar, that's a monkey off my back, I can move on to Europe. And instead, he finds himself with 14 points. Mark Marquez comes back next next round in all likelihood, and he's only got 14 points cushion to Marquez. Like, after Qatar, you want to have a big points cushion. You want to be like Johan Zarco with a 40-point advantage over Mark Marquez. Yeah, and you're seeing two Pramac Ducatis on the podium at a track where for the last seven ra- you know, years, it's been a Yamaha or a Ducati winning the Grand Prix. Uh, and I, again, like we said, after the test, all eyes were on him. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it, it wasn't a very easy flight home for, for Jack Miller. Yeah, and I think you just have to contrast his performances to, to Zarco. I mean, Zarco looks like a more complete rider at this point on the Ducati than Jack and Zarco has two years less experience on the Ducati than Jack. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, uh, this is not to say that I don't think this is a uh, something Jack can re- can't recover. Um, I still expect him to um, go well. You know, he had a podium at uh, Portimao last year, really good podium. He's always been really good at Le Mans. You know, you wouldn't bet against him winning the French Grand Prix this year in the next couple of races. So there are good opportunities for him to come back and come back soon. Um, but, um, yeah, I would still say that, you know, Zarco was kind of like the template for, you know, how the Ducati could be in its kind of best form at Qatar and, and Miller kind of fell below that. Yeah. And Neil, you mentioned there about, we go to Portimao next. It's a good weekend last year for Jack Miller. It was a great weekend last year for Miguel Oliveira and KTM, but we actually had a great race from KTM yesterday as well. We had Brad Binder able to finish inside the top 10, made massive strides forward, Ad, from one Qatar race to the next. Yeah, I mean, a vastly reduced race time. Um, it helped that the KTM's gambled on the medium uh, front, uh, medium tyre set. Um, but for Binder's case, I mean, there were the notable achievements there. He made a fantastic start as well, which was something that Pekka Bagnaya, for example, like Neil said, uh, you know, cost him his uh, chance of a, of a good race. Uh, but also making up 10 positions, uh, finishing eighth. I mean, the previous best for KTM was in 2019, a 12th position with pole. So it's, as we've said before, traditionally, Dassau is not a strong track for the KTMs. They just don't have enough experience and race mileage to be able to get that motorcycle working around that sort of the flowing trajectory the track has. Uh, Miguel Oliveira, uh, he should have been in the mix also. I mean, what a start he had. I think he was fourth. Uh, third to fourth fit around the first couple of turns um, but then he said that you know his his dashboard uh, malfunctioned so he couldn't even see any of the information uh, he actually switched towards the end of the race into um, a fuel saving map uh, so that also inhibited his performance and then also he lost the shifting lights and it was very interesting what he said afterwards actually uh, because he was trying to remember the optimum time to shift the bike uh, just from memory again because they've done so many laps around LaSalle in the last couple of weeks but when he got back to the pit garage and consulted with his technicians he saw that every time he was shifting he was missing the mark 
Um, and of course, like we said in MotoGP, if you're, uh, you know, if you're slightly off in terms of, uh, you know, making the motorcycle work to a 100% or 110%, because I know Dave loves that kind of uh, saying, <laughs> then, you know, you're going to be struggling. It's interesting that some riders actually um, don't use those shift lighters, uh, those, those shift lights as much. They actually prefer to work to the the, the sound. They go by the sound. Um, uh, and others, I mean, it's also interesting that Oliveira is a big fan, or you know, wants to see the lights because he's a much more analytical kind of a, a kind of a rider. So maybe that, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But I certainly find that really interesting that he feels that he needs to see the lights and um, uh, other riders are just, uh, you know, playing it by ear and playing it by feel. Yeah, I think that the most famous example of that was Danny Pedrosa. He always skewed using a digital readout. He always wanted to have an analogue speedo and it's an analogue rev counter and different things like that. He wanted to have all those things that he was just accustomed to, things he was used to seeing. It was easier for him to understand when's the right point to shift because you're looking at it come up towards the very limit and you know different things for different riders it was impressive by Oliveira though that he was able to finish within nine seconds with all these problems and impressive the KTM after 10 days found a solution and it was by taking a gamble and using the medium tires because at, during the course of testing Brad Bender tried the medium tire and it was disastrous for him yeah, he had three crashes and he said that each each crash was just a front washing out without any warning or, uh, you know, any kind of signs of pushing. So, you know, I think it really spooked them. Um, you know, Oliveira said they tried the tyre, they knew it was safe, but they didn't know how well it would perform. Um, the KTMs weren't going to get anywhere with a soft tyre. Uh, Binder actually said on two qualification runs, the, the rubber was already gone. Uh, so that was not really an option either. And of course, the hard, were, you know, was, uh, you know, you might as well would have chucked it in the bin outside the back of the pit. So, uh, you know, the medium was a gamble. Um, and, you know, KTM are kind of left with their tails up because now they're going to a racetrack where they know their package works. The the hard is, I mean, like the hard tasks are only there because of Qatar's stupid schedule where they have to do practice in the day. So that means that Qatar has got to, or that Michelin has got to bring these hard tires, which only work when the sun is shining and track temperature, temperature is 40 something. Um, but they're completely useless at night once the track is, what is it, 25, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, the whole Qatar exercise is um, a, a very peculiar and unique exercise and a waste of time for everyone else. The crazy time schedule of Qatar. I can see Neil already <laughs> thinking to himself, Dave, I don't want to go back to 5am finishes to the day. I don't want to be back in college anymore. This is going to be disastrous. But uh, Neil, just to keep you awake over in, in, in Qatar, because you're still out there, I want to ask you about Aprilia and I want to ask you about Aleish because he leaves Qatar with, you know, Two good, two good race weekends. He's eighth in the world championship. But do you think our pretty also going to be thinking? You know what? This is a missed opportunity. We had better pace than what we end up with points wise. Um, in one respect, yes, they did have better pace uh, than results wise. However, it's just one of those things where, in a, a kind of leg race with so many Ducatis in the lead group, I think Aprilia was always going to. You know, to lose out in that situation. Um, Alice was saying that his bike was performing really well. He was really happy with the front stability in the race once again. Um, but he just said fourth, fifth, and sixth gears. You know, he was just hopeless against the Ducatis. You know, and that's not that's not um, a serious criticism of Aprilia because you know they're not alone in that regard. Um, he was 
he was up there, I think, running as high as third at one point, um, and then lost out a little bit um, in the closing laps. But you know, if you look at the the race times, Aprilia were five point nine seconds off the race winner at round one, five point three seconds off the winner at round two. I mean, for a much changed bike. I think they've done pretty well. I think Aleish rode two pretty good races as well. He didn't do anything rash, uh, managed to keep his composure um, through both weekends. Um, and it was just the fact that this is a track with a humongously long straight that is always going to um, suit some of the faster bikes um, in, a, in a kind of scrap that we saw. Um, and I'm really eager to see just how good they will be when we get to Portimao and Jerez because Aleish was certainly saying that he thinks this bike could be a top five bike in a place with a less uh, or with a shorter long straight specifically because of the aero package which they've used they you know they're using this high drag um uh, aero package uh, which um really helps with the wheelie but you really pay a lot in top speed you know by the time you get to the end of the straight then you're starting to lose out on speed because you know it's keeping the but it's really helping them accelerate out of corners much better um so yeah i was going to point out yeah that they, they alish actually finished closer to the front um uh, at the end of the or closer to the winner at the end of the second race so things are looking very very positive and i'm really interested to see how it will go around uh Jerez, for example i think that's going to be a much much better um a measure of where the aprilia stands at a classic european track don't forget also with Andrea Davizioso jumping on the bike, you know, the the Prettier is really one to watch. Uh, you know, Alesh was being asked about this, wasn't he, over the weekend? And, you know, was it when trying to stress that he was a top level rider? He didn't need any, you know, anybody coming into the team to motivate him. Um, but, you know, what Dovi contributes to that that project, uh, what his feedback is straight away and what kind of effect it can have on the motorcycle is, uh, you know, something to really watch over the next month or two. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to seeing two fast riders on that bike, you know, two equally fast riders. That would be uh, great. I mean, we've talked about this before. I don't know whether Savadori will stay on that bike or not, but, uh, you know, anyone would rather see Alessio Spargaro and Andrea Dovicioso on that bike than Alessio Spargaro uh, and um, Lorenzo Savadori or, sorry, Bradley, but Bradley Smith as well, because Bradley Smith needs a lot more time to get back up to speed. Two equally fast riders, Dave. Davi is not on a par with Alesha and shouldn't be compared to him unless he suddenly lost a massive amount over the the course of the winter because Davi's a guy that's been able to challenge for world championships. He's been able to you know, win a lot of races, loads of podiums, world champion as well, don't forget in the 125 class, really went toe-to-toe with Lorenzo on a lesser bike in the 250 class. He is that quality rider that Aprilia need. Aleish has got the speed. There's no doubt about that. He's a very fast rider. But Davi's got that for the full season as well. And that's what's going to be important if, if Aprilia are going to make a step. Well, let me rephrase that. Perhaps not two equally fast riders, but rather Aleish Spargro and a rider that's faster than him rather than Aleish Spargro <laughs> and a rider that's slower than him. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting with Aprilia because, you know, Pace is only useful if you can use it. And Aprilia weren't in a position to be able to use it, but they have made a clear step. That's a massive progress for them. And that's really interesting. Let's uh, finish off before we get just a a couple of questions from another few listeners. I want to ask you pretty quickly about Honda. Dave, you just, you take this one. What was your thoughts on Honda for this weekend? Um, 
again, I think um, they have a lot of work to do. The, the LCR was a complete mystery because both um, uh, Alex Marquez and Takanakagami seemed to be doing their best to um, use up as much of uh, Lucio Cecchinello's parts budget as, uh, as possible. Um, so it's really difficult to say. Um, uh, again, like the KTM's, the Hondas really need a, a, a stronger front tyre. Uh, they didn't take the gamble and try to use the medium. It would have been interesting to see what they could have done if they'd have done that. Polis Bargaro doesn't have the experience with the bike to be able to uh, understand that, to understand the risks that he's taking. Um, but, you know, like Paul had a reasonable weekend. They had, they, they I mean, if you, you had to give them a mark, it would be sort of, you know, a somewhere between a C and a C minus, you know, like they were good enough. Uh, but that was it. But again, we will see what happens when they get back to Europe. Um, and that is without Mark Marquez. I don't think you can sort of say anything about Mark Marquez because Mark Marquez is a, uh, it, you know, is a special case. So, yeah, I, I want to see what they can do once they get back, once they get back to Europe to places which are not so unique. Yep. And I would just like to add, um, I think, yeah, I would maybe give uh, Paul a B minus in his first um, couple of weekends with with Repsol Honda. I think there's tremendous potential there, um, but you know the mistake, obviously, I think two mistakes at turn one in the second race cost him big time. Um, I would just like to say though that I thought you know Paul was getting way too kind of emotional. I, I know that's something that we we kind of yeah. know. Have you met Have you met Paul Aspargaro yes, before? Yes, David. <laughs> yes, I have met Paul Aspargaro before, Dave. But I've also met Paul Aspargaro when he's you know um, one or two years into a project and things aren't going well, and he's you know perfectly entitled to get emotional. But he's in his second race, and uh, you know on Saturday he was properly like having a a bit of a moment. You know, like we're totally lost, everything's not working, and you know on the verge of crying. And it was like, mate, this is not a good track for Honda. You have to just, you know, suck it up and, you know, you'll get to better tracks. Um, and to be fair to him, you know, he, he recovered and, and rode really well on Sunday. But it was just one of those instances where you just thought you shouldn't be putting this amount of emotion. Well, you should be obviously emotionally invested into this, but um, yeah, you shouldn't be getting as emotional as you are right now because there are a lot of factors that are working against you in experience with the bike and the track being one of them. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any other rider on the grid who had more pressure on his shoulders than Paul Espargaro. Um, you know, like Danilo Petrucci pointed out, only him and Paul are the are the two riders on the grid riding new bikes. Um, you know, there, there was a big challenge ahead of them. And, uh, you know, like as we said, Paul is prone to, you know, massive highs and, and, and big lows. But, uh, you know, he only finished six seconds off the race winner. Um, you know, which, you know, he would have been telling everybody about if he, would, if he was riding the KTM. So, you know, maybe that shows uh, how he shifted his expectations for 2021. Um, but, you know, the Honda's won one Grand Prix in La Salle since 2011. So, you know, like, like Neil said, it's not a Honda track. So, you know, calm down, Paul, your time, your time will come. Well, let's just look at some of our questions from our listeners as well. We've got a question in from Berto Pinero. And uh, what Berto's asking is whether or not Tectois are already at a point where they have to look at making changes for next season when, in terms of their rider lineup. You know, if so, do you see two riders changing or did Petrucci show you something to, to give you a bit of hope this weekend? And uh, who would you like to see put onto that bike? So, Neil, you jump you jump in if you want. Hey, go, go to Adam for this one, Steve. Okay, Adam, you go in then. 
Um, I would say Petrucci. Petrucci's so great signs. I mean, let's not forget he pushed up to fourth in the horror show that was, I think, FP3 on Saturday. Uh, he's he's. There's no way you can judge him this early on on the uh, the RC16. As for Ika Liguano, I know he's got a lot of credit uh, with the brand and also the team purely because of his age. Uh, but like we said, and I think in our in our previous show, uh, perhaps Liquana and Takanakagami are the two riders this year that really have to show something to justify their seats in the class. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a good question, you know, because if you look at the results, uh, Ika crashed out as well on Sunday. Um, you know, the there will be questions about Tech Three and their rider lineup, but. One, it's maybe too early to judge for this season. Uh, another one, it might be a little bit too early to judge, uh, full stop. Yeah, I mean, it's Qatar. Uh, Qatar is a terrible track for KTM. Um, uh, you know, even the factory KTMs didn't do well. I did think that uh, uh, Petrucci made a big step, which he needed to do in the second race. I think we'll know much more once we get to other tracks. Um, it is only the second race. You can't tell anything because it's Qatar. So that is a bit early. However, uh just look at KTM's talent pipeline. It's amazing. Remy Gardner, Raul Fernandez, who is just astonishing as a rookie. Uh, Pedro Acosta. Um, Jamal Masia. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jaume Masia. Right. I mean, they are running out. They don't have enough MotoGP bikes. That's the trouble. There's just not enough room for riders. I mean, you would... Is there... Uh, well, I mean, maybe you wouldn't put um, Pedro Acosta on a MotoGP bike, but if you did, you would still have, you know, surprisingly high expectations for him. There's all of them, you know, both. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold the bus here, Dave. Sixteen-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know he's a sixteen-year-old, but I mean, like, it is two races, has a- Dave. Two races. <laughs> he's not right, a MotoGP I've... rider yet, Dave. Can't no, it's no. No, he isn't. But Take you can medicine. start to think. But you can th- you can start to think like, okay, right. He's starting off on the right foot. You can see that uh, you know, two three years time, um, uh, you might need a slot in the um, uh, in KTM for him. You have to start planning for those things. Um, Romano Fernandi, twenty twelve, Dave. Yeah, well, uh, Chan, let Chan me... Onchu, Valencia. Yeah, but Pedro Acosta. <laughs> uh, of course, it, he was also a KTM, right? Why is he in World Supersport, Dave? <laughs> he because... won on his debut. He's the youngest Grand Prix winner. Yeah, I know, because Chan Onchu is managed by um, uh, Kane and Soft Wernglut. That's why he's in World Super Sport. Um, and because Chan Onchu isn't as bright as Pedro Acosta, Pedro Acosta seems much more settled, much calmer, much more mature. Uh, the same with Fanati. Fanati's, uh, Fanati's talent is phenomenal. Unfortunately, he doesn't have the brain to actually use it. Fanati is too much Andrea Iannone, whereas I think Pedro Acosta looks more like Miguel Oliveira. Can I just quickly say, you know, before we go on to the next question, um, you know, we have to remember that for a rider like Ika Likuona, that kind of second seat, that BC, if you like, in Tech 3 is the, the place where a, a rookie or a young rider needs to be. Um, you know, I think it's, it's it's pretty, if he was to be in a more higher profile, to be kind, uh, not to be too harsh on on Tech 3, then, you know, he he would be under far more pressure, far more time constraints to really show what he can do. So, you know, I think he's had a season uh, and a bit uh, in, in, you know, if maybe if we get into the late summer, he hasn't shown really kind of top 10 potential, then you have to ask questions. But, you know, still a bit too soon. Yeah, pressure is much higher on Petrucci than it is on uh, than it is on Lecuona because Petrucci, you know, he's a known quantity. I don't think it is, though, Dave, because... Lekwona is very dispensable. He's a rider that 
KTM plucked from Moto Two. He, he's you know obviously super talented. We've seen that all the way through, but it's not enough to be talented in Moto GP. Now we always say that you need to be experienced. You need to have you know intelligence. You need to be able to understand the bike. You need to be able to set the bike up. All these different factors come into it. And Likuona was fast tracked through by KTM in in a bit of a flap, really, because of the Zarco situation. And then suddenly he could easily find himself washed out for the precise reasons that Adam say he they can keep him. There's no pressure on that seat, which also means they've got nothing to lose by bringing in someone else. It could be a Remy Gardner. Personally, I'd love to see Toprak on the bike. He's Red Bull backed. He's Turkish. It's great for MotoGP to open up that market. He might well be managed by Keenan Safogli, Dave. But you know what? Put him on the bike because he's the fourth KTM. And if it if it ends up being a disaster, you've you've risked nothing. You know, I think someone like Top Rack is your ultimate boom or bust rider. Whereas there's a lot of riders that you can put into those kind of seats that you know are going to be all right. Top Rack could be fantastic or he could not adapt at all. But he could be one of those riders that's worth taking a chance. And then, like you said, Dave, as well, KTM have got a pipeline of talent. We've already mentioned Remy Gardner, you know, Raul Fernandez could be one of those guys that's a one and done Moto 2 rider. Yeah, but I mean, Lecuona's 21. That's the thing. Like, Lecuona, is he 21, 22? He's very, very young. Danilo Petrucci is 31. Um, Petrucci is at the point in his career where he needs to perform and he doesn't get, if he doesn't perform, then he gets kicked out for a young talent with more potential. Um, MotoGP rider selection, a lot of it is about potential. Do you have the potential? Um, we know what Petrucci's potential is. He's won a MotoGP race. If he can't be at that level, um, where he's competing for a win, then I think if he, if he can't show that, then I think he's in trouble and he's the first one to go rather than Lekawona, who still has the potential. Yeah, the, like at the end of the day, it always comes down to what the ceiling and the floor is. And it's, you know, obviously you look at Factory Ducati, someone like Paco Bagnaia has got a very high ceiling and probably quite a high floor. So you're going to get decent performances out of Paco whenever he gets himself bedded in. Obviously last year we saw he was still inconsistent, but you look at what he did in Moto2, you're going to have that confidence. And that's, Obviously, what KTM will look to do as well at some point with the Tech Trois team. Again, not to, to bounce too much on attention, but if you look at the history of Moto2 World Champions, there's only every rider bar two is now riding in MotoGP. You know, that's in sort of that's for the better part of ten years. So I think you know you have to be looking at Moto2 and you know to win a championship. If that's the barometer of or the criteria that you need to be in MotoGP, uh, then. You know, that raises all sorts of questions. You know, is Remy Gardner going to be more valid for Ico Likuana's seat? Or is somebody like Sam Lowe's? Because, you know, he's been in MotoGP before. It didn't work out. If he wins the World Championship again this year, he should he deserve to go back into the the main class? Um, maybe I'm being biased, but I think yes. So, you know, there's the, there is all sorts of like factors coming into the mix-up of saddles. It should be quite a good silly season, actually. Yeah, and uh, as you mentioned there, Sam Lowe's in Moto2. We've got... Not not a Moto two question from our listeners. We've got a Moto three question. We'll jump straight to Moto two before that, just uh, to get your guys' thoughts on what we saw in that race. Well, Ad, you picked it as your moment of the weekend. You know, I, I couldn't really argue too much with it because I thought it was it was a great race. Yeah, it was. Uh, Sam Lowe's was the only one hundred percent man, wasn't he, from both Grand Prix? Uh, you know, okay. Again, we've said it was a very particular set of circumstances, very similar. Um, but then again, compared to the start of last year where he was riding injured uh, and there were questions over the fact whether, you know, does he really deserve that place in that team and, and such billing in Moto2. And by the end of the season, he nailed it. Uh, you know, this was a really strong statement, I think, from Sam Lowe's. So fingers crossed that he can maintain that level. 
And uh, Dave, obviously, you picked Moto 3 as your moment, and the pit lane start for Pedro Acosta really sets the scene for what we what we went on to sh- to see. We asked for feedback on Twitter, at Paddock Pass Pod, for what everyone thought of the Moto 3 penalties, and we got lots of feedback. We got, you know, Max tweeted us to say, look, what's the next step for penalties? If a pit lane start isn't enough of a penalty, what do we have to do next? Obviously, we got a bit of an answer for that with John McPhee and Jeremy Alcoba. We got a, a tweet in from Al, and he said, you know what, they should ditch this, go full Isle of Man TT, let's have a time trial, let's have, you know, super bike, super pole sessions, let's bring that back. You know, Mike was asking, why did the team managers even let this happen? Surely at some point, you have to give accountability to a higher degree than just the riders on the bike and then uh, david boda basically just said you know why can't they why can't they learn why can't they learn from their mistake <laughs> sorry motorbike riders from the learning why, why do you have to learn from your mistake if starting from the pit lane you can still set a race rhythm that's enough to draw you <laughs> up to the pack and then cut through i mean that's that's the, you know the the result was i mean it was such a fantastic spectacle not only because it was the typical motor three race but you had that sight of seven ride well not seven there was like two of them fanati and uh you know acosta catching up the group but then you also had you know the incident with john mcphee and at the you know it just kind of there were penalties flying left right and center i mean it was uh at times it was like a fake wrestling contest or, or whatever. It was it was it was quite it was entertaining fair. I'd just kind of in line with that, you've said this a few times before. Is Moto three actually entertaining or is it all just let's get to the last two laps? It, it, it is. I mean look I, I mean you have fifteen riders all holding each other up. You allow a rider that starts well after uh, you know, the pack has gone round the first turn to catch up and win the Grand Prix. I mean, it, there is, there is, uh, it's really, it's just, it's like some bizarre peloton where everyone's sort of, you know, taking turns to, you know, to, to get out in front. And I do, did wonder actually, you know, during the race, I mean, we shared it on the WhatsApp group we had between us, but it's a case of, you know, can any, can a rider really make the difference in the category anymore? Can actually uh, can we just have a criterium race, Dave, where the guy that's at the back of the group just has to drop out of the race every lap, and then suddenly it's like <laughs> a last man standing battle between the two? Maybe that would be great for you know how you actually set the grid in Moto Three. I it still would, think they carnage, should have a, uh, but it would be great. <laughs> I still think they should have like a, a like in MXGP. They should have um, uh, they should just have a qualifying race. That would make a lot more. That would actually make a lot more sense because this way. But the, the point about the penalties is you're not paying. It doesn't matter what you do to the riders because the riders don't care anyway. The riders are always going to go for what they can, and they're doing what the teams tell them. The teams, ha- the you, yeah, the people you have to punish are the teams. And until you can find a way to uh, to punish the teams, then they will keep telling their riders you have to go and get a tow. You have to qualify on the front row of the grid or in the front part of the grid. I really want to hear from the man who has to comment on all the free practice sessions in Moto Three <laughs> and has to deal with all the penalties and like the kind of rider mentalities. What what do you reckon, Neil? Yeah, you've been very quiet, Neil. <laughs> I thought you were know saving it. I thought he was saving it for Paddock Pass. Actually, want the um, want the specialist take sign up for the money. No, Neil. <laughs> Neil, just tell us tell us about Matt Don's hair, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite something. It is quite a sight. Sight for sore eyes, as my mum would say. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's got to the stage where, yeah, you, you're not really learning much about a lot of the guys when you have essentially all of the field bar, you know, six or seven names fighting at the front. Um, you kind of, and, and they're doing, you know, lap times that are probably a second, a second and a half off what they're capable of. 
um yeah you, you wonder like okay you're learning a bit from a bit of racecraft at the end but um you know what how does this prepare you for moto 2 where you just have to go flat out the whole time um yeah and i I, I think I think the fact that there is so much ridiculously close race in the Moto Three almost devalues it ever so slightly, you know, like because yeah, you want the occasional guy to just appear head and shoulders above the rest, you know. Like um, I think a couple of runaway victories would actually be a good thing for the class. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I mean, but Sunday's race was unreal, unbelievable entertainment. Um, but um, yeah, I think there are certain team managers that, that do look at the current incarnation of Moto3 and think this isn't really training my riders as well as what it did five or six years ago or what one to fives did. I think as well as that, though, we're at a point now with Moto3 where so many of the top guys moved on last year that we're left with a lot of the guys that aren't going to get another opportunity. You know, I'd, I'm going to break your heart here. Romano Fanati, you know, he's a Moto3 rider. Antonelli, we saw him really fast during this race, but Antonelli's not going to get another chance at moving up through the classes. He might move to a 600 Supersport bike, but he's not going to get a Moto2 ride unless he goes out and wins the championship. You know, John McPhee is at an age where, you know, he shouldn't be involved in so many instants it doesn't matter if the instants aren't his fault there's a reason why you get to that age and you're still in the moto 3 class so we're at a point where you know all these superstars and that's that's what like we talked about in our moto 3 season preview that's how all of us viewed pedro acosta after red bull rookies and cev last year you know we talked about Izan Guevara and the potential he has to jump in and make an impact he's at two top 10 finishes in his first two grand prix you know in normal circumstances we'd look at a guy coming in and doing that and we'd lack wax lyrically about them you know javi ortigas you know you know he might be rough around the edges but he's been in the lead group in both the two races and he had a podium in valencia on his grand prix debut a couple of years ago you know these guys coming in are ready to make that step and because moto 3 has a bit of a lack of depth at the top right now for established riders they're able to get right to the front and they're able to dictate an awful lot of terms and i think that's what's kind of playing into this as well right now there's an awful lot of no man's land in moto 3 right now yeah just quickly steve following on we said it before as well that you know it shows the level of the cev and also the red bull rookies uh you know that a rider like acosta i mean he may be a fantastic talent and, and go on to bigger and better things but the fact that he can come in after dominating that series and already shine so well in moto 3 shows the the narrowing gap between a grand prix class and those kind of filtering or those feeder series i mean it's a similar scenario almost in mxgp where you have the mx250 european championship straight into mx2 there are riders there that are, are european championship race winners they can jump straight into grand prix and also have you know they'll be vying for race wins so so it's uh, in a way, like Neil said, it does. There is a kind of devaluation going on. Yeah, and obviously Pedro Costa is already a MotoGP rider and waiting. So uh, you know, the <laughs> level on, of these guys coming in. Stick him on the Tech in, Three bike. Put him, on, <laughs> put him on the factory bike. Put him on the factory bike. Just do it. It's grand. Now, admittedly, he might want to be able to use a digital readout as well during the course of races. So maybe <laughs> just take take your time. But we'll wait and see how he does. But I think you know, Ad, you're dead right. And it comes down to what we talked about in our preseason shows. You know, the talent level coming through the CEV Championship is higher than ever, really, right now. And the reason for that is, you know, you've got European Talent Cup, you've got Asia Talent Cup, you've got the British Talent Cup, you've got the Northern European Talent Cup now. 
that's not necessarily where we're getting great writers, but it means that more young writers get opportunities. So you might find one great writer in each of those championships each year. You might find, you know, a couple of great riders that can they have that potential to then find their, their way onto a Red Bull rookies bike or onto a CEV bike. You know, and that's why you've just got lots of talent coming through and really learning their trade. And that's why, you know, whenever you're spending so much time on Grand Prix machinery before you actually move into the Grand Prix paddock, you know, you could have 30 Red Bull rookie starts, you could have 40 or 50 CEV Moto 3 starts. So you've basically got 80 you know, starts on Grand Prix machinery. So yeah, you've got to learn to adapt to new circuits, traveling, new rivals, all that kind of thing. But you've got what would have been the equivalent of three, four, maybe even five seasons on Grand Prix machinery in the past before you've even made your your debut. And that didn't really happen as much in the past. And I think that's what kind of gives these young riders an opportunity. And that's where, you know, if you think back to, let's pick Valentino Rossi. You go back to the mid-90s. You know, someone like Rossi, guy that came in during the same time you know they were outliers they were young kids that were immediately able to hit the front from you know european one two five championships straight into the world championships that was quite rare whereas now it's much more commonplace because these kids are much more experienced than they were you know 15 years ago 10 years ago yeah and they're riding on uh they'll have ridden at all four spanish grand prix tracks they'll have ridden at portimao which is now also a grand prix track they'll have ridden at le mans which is also a grand prix pa- uh, track because that's where the cv fi well fim you know the one uh the the, the fim cv cv world junior world championship races so, so close so close you know oh, no, i'm not even gonna bother to i'm not even gonna race. bother but but they know they know these tracks already. So that's like six six tracks of the uh, of the what is it eighteen or nineteen that they're going to be racing at. Um, so there's so much less to and they do they have experience with the machines. They have experience with the teams also because a lot of these they're in feeder teams um, which get uh, get into Moto three. So yeah, the gap between the FIMCV and the and Moto three is not zero but very 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 small. And and just quickly again, it's you know timing is an opportunity is everything, isn't it? I mean, look at Ralph Fernandez jumping straight out of a very good uh, end of Moto Three season, with a lot of momentum, and now he was also one of the standout riders in Moto Two. Um, you know, is it was it the right time for Tony Arbolino to jump straight into Moto Two or Lorenzo de la Porta? Uh, you know, these riders who have vaulted into the next category. I mean, you could look at a rider like Paulo Spargaro. He 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 was nowhere in his first year in Moto Two, and then eventually won the championship. I know now Moto Two is much more of a a reduced kind of class in terms of differentiation in machinery with a Calac chassis. But, uh, you know, again, just the factor of what saddle is open to you and what opportunity is open to you can really make or break your career or at least save you a couple of years. Story of racing. Yeah, exactly, Dave. And I think that the likes of Adela Porta, it's very easy to forget. You know, he was he was a world champion. He did a great job, you know, and you do make that move then into into the intermediate class it's very rare that you get a rider that sticks around in the introductory class like uh manuel Poggiali that stuck yeah. around to retain or to defend his world championship and then obviously moved on to a 250 and won a world championship as a rookie you know that's quite rare and uh, those riders are now under pressure to progress all the way through and it kind of brings us into you know, where we are right now. And uh, that's why, just before we finish up tonight, I want to just have it where you know, we all give our winners and losers from the weekend because you know there's so many guys we can pick for winners and there's so many guys that we can pick as well on the flip side of that. And that could be across all three classes as well because there's there's just so much to talk about. That's why, you know, 
we've been on for an hour and a half and we've still got Paddock Pass Podcast Extra to record as well, just for our Patreon supporters. So it shows just how much news there is in the Grand Prix Paddock right now. But Dave, I'm going to come to you for your for your winner over the course of the Doha Grand Prix. Uh, I think my winner is KTM because, uh, as I said, because of their talent pool, they just have so much talent. Uh, they fixed their uh, some of their problems in um, in the in MotoGP. Brad Binder had a fantastic race. I think the close the best result and closest result ever uh, at uh, Qatar. Um, you know, Remy Gardner, Raul Fernandez, pa- uh, Pedro Acosta, uh, Jaime Masia. Um, the the future, well, yeah, the, the the future is bright. The future is orange. To steal a, 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 a an advertising slogan from someone else. Yeah, Dave. Obviously, you're going to pick KTM as your losers as well because they're going to have to give up <laughs> some of those riders going forward as well. Neil, what about you? Who's your big winner from the Doha Grand Prix? Uh, similar theme to Dave, but I'm going to go with uh, Brad Binder just because it was um, so unexpected. We had almost written KTM off um, in MotoGP as um, you know not going to really be able to achieve anything, um, but they took that uh, medium front tire gamble, um, and Brad just rode like an absolute champ, rode like an animal, um, salvaged uh, a top ten finish, overtook two people in the last lap, eighth place, less than six seconds off, I think 13, 12 or thirteen seconds faster from race one to race two. Yeah, Binder. I think you're really going to struggle to pick another KTM rider, are you? No, I was going to say a team, Red Bull KTM AO, but they've already <laughs> did it. No, my winner uh, has to be Johan Zarco. Uh, you know, leaving the first two races as leader of the MotoGP World Championship, you know, I'm uh, I'm sure that every time he kind of passes a KTM or he's racing a KTM, he either th- must be thinking, thank God I got off that thing, or, you know, did I really almost sink my career by taking a big paycheck and not really carrying the right attitude into that project? But, uh, you know, now you can't argue with uh, the bike he's got beneath him or the job that he's doing. Yeah. And uh, I tell you what, I can't really argue with any of those. But uh, for for me, my, my big winner of the weekend, I said this last night in Paddock Notes, and I'm going to say it again. My big winner was actually Sam Lowe's because I think it's impressive when any rider that's established in the Grand Prix paddock. And, you know, Sam's won a lot of races. He's been a front runner for a long time. He's a world champion in the Supersport class. But any time that a rider that we know how good they can be goes out and has the best race that we've ever seen from them, I think deserves kudos. And, you know, that's taken into account races where Sam ran away from the field in Moto2. And I thought his performance yesterday, just to soak up that pressure, was so impressive. And going into the last corner, I think everyone thought Remy was just going to shove it down the inside but it came down to just how late Sam could break and then as well he's adjusted his riding style we talked about it in the Moto2 season preview using that scooter rear brake and that really allowed him to get the bike stopped not give up the corner and then get the win so for me he was my big winner but uh, if there's winners there's always losers and who was your big loser from the weekend? I'm not sure if I'm going to contradict myself from what I said earlier, but the loser for me uh, is Valentino Rossi. Um, is this the beginning of the end? Uh, that's that's it, really. Yeah, and it's fair enough as well. Like like we said earlier on, you know, this is a historical moment, the worst qualifying performance of Rossi's career, tough race weekend, and uh, you know this could be the moment we look back on and think, yeah, that was the turn. I don't think it's going to be a moment that we look back and you know put down as a footnote on Rossi's career. We'll forget that he qualified twenty first pretty quickly. But hard to argue with that. Dave, what about you? I mean, it's tempting to say to to just agree completely with um uh with Adam, 
because, yeah, this was just horrendous for Valentina Rossi. Uh, but I'm going to save it for if he is uh, uh, for if he's 21st at Mugello. So I think I'm going to go with Jack Miller because Jack Miller um, leaves Qatar as the fourth Ducati in the standings behind his factory teammate and the two Pramac Ducatis. Um, and he leaves frustrated. He leaves to go and get um, arm pump surgery and he's going to need more than, you know, at least one race to recover from our arm pump surgery. So, and he goes to Portimao as well, which is, you know, a right hand circuit, which is uh, not good for having to recover from arm pump surgery. So, yeah, I think, um, uh, I think it was a bad weekend for Jack Miller and not what he was expecting, especially coming out of the test. Neil, what about you? Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with John McPhee just because he came into the Model 3 season as, you know, one of the preseason favourites. Um, you know, he has to really fight for the championship this year. Um, and he's essentially, I mean, barring kind of a minor miracle, he's going to leave round three of the season with no points to his name, um, you know, which is just staggering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the guy just, uh, can't catch a break at the moment. Um, the fisticuffs in the you know in the sand trap afterwards were mildly entertaining. Uh, obviously not for him, but just because John is such a nice and mild mannered guy, you know, to see him lose his head like that, you know how raging and and furious and frustrated he must have been. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not looking you know the the situation for the championship isn't looking good for him at the moment. Um, and uh, yeah, pretty pretty bad yeah and uh again tough to argue with that and i, I actually i'll be honest i was going to pick john for mine but instead as you were talking there dave as you were talking there rad um uh, and then obviously what neil said i'm actually just going to pick the whole patronus team because this was you know it's such a such a difficult weekend for so many of their riders you know we saw mcphee obviously have that issue in Moto Three, we saw, you know, Jake Dixon and Javi Vieira struggling in uh, Moto Two. Obviously, Dixon in particular with his injuries, and then we saw Morbidelli and Rossi down the order at a track where Yamaha has won both races this this season. So for me, Petronas were were the the big losers this weekend, and that's even taking into account what Darren Binder was able to do in the in the Moto Three race. Yeah, that, I was going to say Darren Binder is second in the championship and um, has been a, a very, very consistent. So, uh, you know, hats off to what Darren Binder, he's the only light point in that um, um, or bright point in that team at the moment. I would also like to apologise to all the listeners that we won't have any interviews from any of the Patronus riders across <laughs> the classes in the next few weeks. But uh, never mind, we'll find somebody else. And we're 90 minutes into the show. There's no way that a team press officer is listening this long. We're going to be fine. <laughs> Um, we're, we're 90 minutes into into this show. We've still got uh, Panic Pass Podcast Extra to record as well. That's just for our Patreon supporters. So for all Patreon supporters, we give them an extra show. And uh, that's every week we record an extra show just to be able to give them something for their $3 a month. We also have a Paddock Insiders tier as well. That's $10 a month. And that's where we give our Paddock notes. And uh, we're also going to offer some live streams as well for our Paddock Insiders where they'll be able to join us as we record and basically ping us questions and uh, we can we can use different formats for that show so we've got lots of different ways on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for you to support the podcast and far more than supporting it you get lots of content 
for what you're able to put up as well so a um, big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for the support that they have given us over the course of the last couple of months and a big thank you to David Emmett Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler for joining us on the Paddock Pass podcast this week and a big thank you to everyone for listening this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by The Liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Yeah, I mean it was it was tough to tough to really put your finger on Frank. You're muted, Neil. You're muted, Neil. Sh- sorry, lad. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, Brian, if you could uh, maybe just uh, edit that a little bit out. Um